Marine, Combat Veteran, Amputee, Sprinter, Marathoner, Mountaineer. Keontae's story is one impressive, inspiring individual. I first met Keontae when I had the honor of co-hosting the Invictus Games. That's the international competition founded by Prince Harry to showcase wounded warriors' athletic skills and inspire recovery. Keontae told me sports saved his life, gave him purpose and focus after he lost his right lower leg in an IED explosion in Afghanistan. Being injured is honestly one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I have to be honest with that because I've done so much. I've done so much in my life that I would have never thought was possible. And finding myself through these challenges because of my injury just to me has made me a better person. Keontae also discovered the power of scaling peaks in a grueling climb of Antarctica's highest mountain, Mount Vincent, 16,000 icy feet. I kept telling myself, I was like, what do, you, what do we do? And I'm like, well, we don't quit. So we're getting to the summit. And the only thing I can do is try to find motivation. And I always go back to this because it, it makes me laugh, but I always thought of my Marines because I had the Marine Corps flag in my backpack. And that's what, that was another motivation of mine was getting that to the summit. But I always thought about my, my Marines, how they would laugh at me because I don't like the cold and being an African-American, like on the coldest mountain, on the, in the coldest place on earth. It was just like, oh, there's so many jokes, so many jokes. I just kind of laughed in my own head and just kind of took those names and the people that I remember um, who did pass away and even took you know, the names of my friends that they're still alive. Um, and kind of just envision them like walking next to me or hiking with me and we're just kind of like laughing. Um, and it, 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 it gave me that feeling of being back during those hard times where like, I would even question the Marine Corps, like, can I do this? And I find my way to push through. And that was my motivation was doing it for them, doing it for me, but then also the other piece of that puzzle that clicked as I was walking up there was like, I'm doing this for other veterans who are wounded as well, who are in the hospital, who didn't think that, you know, who, who, who don't know what's beyond or what's at the scope of their limit. The transformation of Keontae is remarkable. He never knew his biological parents, grew up in the foster care system in California, was eventually raised by an older second cousin whom he considered his mother. He was a shy kid, bullied in school. And at 19, when he was searching for identity, he joined the Marines. He wanted to test himself in a war in Afghanistan, where he faced a moment that could have meant the end, but turned out to be just the beginning. I do want to go back to the day that did not define you, but certainly okay. helped shape who you are. And that's September 7, 2010, we're in Afghanistan. 3rd Battalion, 7th Marine. You're the team leader. It's a, a patrol fighting the Taliban, and the task is pretty normal for you guys. It's to clear a building. Yes. As the team leader, it's taking longer than you thought it would. You go inside to investigate, and a moment happens that, that does reshape at least your, your near future. Take us through that, and then the aftermath of that, of that explosion. 
my team is pretty much in the building. I'm providing outer security at the time. And as I wait for my team to kind of give words so that we can figure out what we're doing next, I'm realizing, oh, you know, we're, we're in there for a, quite some time. And to me, it was just like, well, we're, we're not doing anything. We, we need to be doing something. Why is it taking so long? So I repositioned my junior Marine and I walk inside like three steps and like 12 other people are already in this building, which is like a hallway. So it's pretty narrow. And we were concerned about IEDs, but I'll be honest at that time, my brain was just like, you know, everyone walked in there. It should be fine. <laughs> it shouldn't be that. I didn't have to worry, but I just happened to step on, you know, maybe the ground was, I, I don't know, but I just happened to take that right step and trigger that IED that everyone walked over and it severed my right leg below the knee. <clears throat> but in that instance, um, it felt like I was hit by a truck. Um, and, you know, I remember just being knocked down and dirt fell in my ear, which is what kept me conscious. <laughs> and that was what actually what pissed me off at the time was just having that dirt fall in my ear. I was just like, oh my God, that's so annoying. But I'm laying on the ground. I'm like, what just happened? Trying to figure out what direction I'm oriented. And I couldn't really tell. I just knew that I'm on the ground on my right side or so. Um, and I'm trying to kick push myself against the wall because um, I know that I'm in a hallway. So I know at least two directions have at least one wall. Um, and I'm trying to push myself against this wall, but my legs aren't responding or they're not doing what I'm requesting of them. So I'm initially assuming I'm a bilateral amputee. And so that, that thought comes into your moment right there. There's the clarity. You're mm -hmm. kind of doing a self-diagnosis from almost yeah. a detached position psychologically, it sounds like. It is because the way that my I initially remember and how I feel like I was trained to do was let me figure out what's going on. So because I know we have a good corpsman, we have a previous corpsman who's also now a Marine with us. So I knew once they got to me, if I can give them, you know, my situation or a sit rep of like what's going on with me, they can already start the triage process and do what they need to do while me remaining conscious and talking to them and explaining like, hey, this is what I'm feeling, this, you know, they can do what they need to do. Um, and it's going to be an efficient process, a smooth process. And I wasn't really concerned at all. I was just like, they just need to get to me and they're hopefully no more IEDs in the way. <laughs> That's um, an amazing thing though, that, that the brain is a powerful tool. And at that moment, yeah. your training kicks in. The instincts mm -hmm. you've been trained to have kick in so that you're concerned for others, but you're also able to kind of step back and figure out what's going on with you. If I remain calm, my team remain calm and we'll be out of here in no time. Your thoughts were for them. Your thoughts were, I, I need to act a certain way so that they'll be able to feed off of my calm, which is yes. remarkable for those of us that have not had that kind of trauma to, to have that presence of mind. Yeah. I mean, if you ever, I mean, sometimes you even see it in movies or you see it in uh, situations where someone is freaking out and everyone starts to freak out. Um, but then you always have that one person that's trying to remain calm or keep everyone calm. That's how I always envisioned it. It's like, if I start to freak out, then everyone else is going to freak out around me because they don't understand why I'm freaking out. Um, but I think, I, I mean, that's just in my own mind, but that's how I looked at it was if I stay calm, they'll stay calm. Easy, you know, easy day. The aftermath of this is powerful. So you, you realize that it's, it's your right leg below your knee. It's not both your legs. Yeah, and right. now you're in the hospital and recovering. And in those 
hours and days just after the incident, mm-hmm. when you're sort of in, in a kind of shock, what what is top of mind? What what are you feeling at that point? Yeah, so I initially wake up in uh, the hospital in uh, Camp Bastion, and then I was uh, flown to Germany, and then I winded up in uh, um, uh, uh, Bethesda Hospital, uh, and at the time, my, my brain wasn't really concerned that I was missing a leg. Um, I actually didn't really care that I was missing a leg. I actually really only cared about my guys that were still there. And I, I, I feel like, oh, why wouldn't you care about your leg? It's like, it didn't mean, at the time, it didn't mean, it didn't matter as much as my guys did. And so, you know, I laid in the hospital and then I realized, well, you know, I'm missing a leg, even if I could be in the fight with them. You know, I, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't be there with them anymore if I wanted to. And that's when I started to realize, okay, you know, it's time for recovery. Let's, what do we got to do next? And that's when I started going through a little bit of physical therapy. I think I had, you know, a few more surgeries before I actually left Bethesda and then flown to uh, San Diego Naval Medical Center uh, where I did my physical therapy. For those of us that haven't served, explain what it is about the power of the bond with those brothers it made you more concerned about them, what they were going through than your own condition, because people listening to this will have a difficult time understanding that perhaps. Yeah. So that bond is just, you go through so many annoying circumstances and situations um, from training to, you know, being up till, you know, 48 hours with each other from hiking, you know, 15, 20 miles with heavy packs and rocks, you, you develop a bond, a brotherhood with each other because you're all suffering together. And when you're, you know, overseas, it's even closer because now there's no more distractions. There's no more family. There's no more girlfriends. There's no more wives. It's just you and the people you've trained with for hours and months and weeks and years. And so that brotherhood becomes even closer. I mean, it's just like a family. Like you have people in the family who are just like, Oh my God, this person is so annoying. I cannot stand talking to them, but you still love them. You'll still do whatever you need for them if they ask. And that's what it's like. Um, when you develop such a bond with them is that when you're overseas, that's really who you care about is the people to your left and to your right, you know, that's family. And then after that, it's just all about getting everyone back home. You know, you don't even worry. You care about the mission, but those are your, those are your mission. That's your main mission is to do what you can to make sure they're safe. They keep you safe and we get back home safe. So as team leader, you're very concerned about your, your brothers and now you're a half a world away. Mm-hmm. Did they come through it okay? Did you get any other news that, that, that anyone else had been affected in that, in that uh, period of time? Um, yeah, actually, uh, when I was injured, there was no one else that was injured around me at that time. So... But as I was still actually at Bethesda Hospital, we had, what was it, three of my Marines that I was with actually come in. One was, uh, I think one was hit by an IED, so he was peppered all over the side of his body. Um, one guy was shot in the neck and it missed the artery, or maybe it was some, yeah, I think it was, yeah, he was shot in the neck. And he was in, he came, I believe so. And then I had another friend who I was with as well, and he uh, stepped on an IED that half discharged. So, and I think it uh, uh, broke his uh, calcaneus or his heel bone. 
Um, and so he ended up getting that his am leg amputated, uh, yeah, leg amputated as well. Um, and so I was actually with him, but he was injured in a different, you know, weeks after I was, you know, when I saw, started seeing them come in um, into the hospital, I was just like, well, you know, I talked to them, they're doing okay. Um, and, you know, it was just, it was good to see them. You know, it was, it was good to see them alive and well and okay. So that, that to me made me happy. Um, and I didn't worry too much about what if I could or couldn't do anything. It was simply, well, it's nothing for me to do at this point, except recovery. So now you're back in California. You're beginning the recovery. You're beginning the journey that's going to take you to the top of mountains. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so many steps along the way. Where was your head? What were the days like as it becomes a progression of, appointments and patiently methodically slowly getting better um it was i can admit to myself now it was rough um you know being in a wheelchair not being able to get up and walk um go to my appointments was a task in itself and then sleeping was a whole nother issue but even as time progressed and I did get my prosthetic, I was able to walk to my appointments. I was always in pain. Um, you know, your, your limb is just, you know, adapting to the external device that you're using now. And, but what really guides me was like my mentality and my headspace. Like I was just in a really dark place. I always described when I was recovering, I always wore a mask. Like most people would know me being very, I wouldn't say upbeat, but happy. You know, for the most part, you wouldn't see me sad or depressed or kind of, uh, I don't think I look bothersome. But when I'm back in my room, I was depressed. I questioned life. I questioned God. I questioned my own existence. Um, what do I do next? Where do I go from here? Because I wasn't planning to be injured. And I feel like I was in a whole new world that I needed to sort out for my own existence. And where do I go? And why am I, you know, and I, and all these questions, um, would flood my mind throughout the night and you know it just I started to abuse my own pain med medication and it just got to a very point it got to a point where I was just like this isn't me this isn't the road that I want to go down on um I can easily go down that road but that's not that's not me that's not who I am to get and, to that point to you when you to get to the point where you decide it's it's not you that you had that conversation in the mirror, what, what did you see in the mirror that led you to deliver that harsh message to yourself and try to change the course right then? Oh, I saw weakness. I, I just saw, I saw a weaker version of who I was, but it wasn't who I know I could be. Um, I would even probably just describe wounded as a well, uh, like a wounded animal who is just trying to survive. But if I allowed myself to continue licking my wounds, I wouldn't get anywhere. You know, sitting in my room, worrying, questioning, I was just like, I need to be, I need to start acting and not thinking or worrying. I need to do something. And after I've, you know, quit my pain meds cold turkey, I, I went and sought out how to travel um, and I found the Paralympic sports and that's what got me into track. Um, and I was able to do that within probably about a month. And I was, I was happy that I made that decision uh, because I don't know where actually where I would be if I didn't actually make that decision. 
Um, but being there at that Paralympic event months later was just like, I was like, this is, this is where I need to be. This is what I wanted to do. And I just kept kind of going after it after that. The decision to, first of all, recognize the weakness, name it, mm-hmm. confront it, and then go off for medications cold turkey. You say that like it's just a decision that you make and it's easily accomplished, man. That had to be incredibly difficult. These are are powerful medications that are dealing with pain and also perhaps psychological issues. And you just said, enough with that. I'm not going to take them. Yeah. I mean, what was that that like? Um, I mean... I didn't even know the definition of addiction. So I probably, I probably went through those moments of whatever someone who is addicted to something goes through. Um, I could be wrong. I I really can't recall that, uh, that phase. I just knew, I just know that it was inhibiting my way of thinking and that's why I used them. That's why I kept taking them because I didn't want to think, I didn't want to feel and that's what those did. It numbed me further than what I was already numbed to. And once I quit, it was able, I was able to confront my own demons, confront my own, my own situation and look at life as like, I'm in charge of my own life. I need to make these decisions and truly view them as they are. You know, it's not going to just up and go, disappear or go away. And I'm not going to be in a situation anymore. If I, you know, I, I'm, I'm choosing to be here. And so I need to make a different choice to go a different direction. So you find yourself at Paralympic camp. We talked before. You were not exactly a, a track star before serving in the Marines. You were not exactly a well-rounded athlete. You were not captain of three different teams in high school. How, how did you connect with this group of Paralympic athletes and sports in general? As term, this is going to be a really crucial part of my journey back to where I want to be. What was that? like light bulb moment when you realize this is something for me, this could be something, even though I'm not returning to the past, this is a whole new page for me. Yeah. Um, it's funny because yeah, I didn't, I didn't grow up as an athlete by any means. I didn't play any high school sports. I played basketball with friends, played football with friends, but this is all at a part. You know, I wasn't really part of a, a team until the Marine Corps, but getting into the Paralympic sports, it reminded me of that camaraderie that I had with my Marines. Uh, you're, you're training and you're working to accomplish the same goal, but individually, you know? And so that competition, that edge, I still wanted to compete against other people. And I found myself by chance in track. And so when I do this, when I did this Paralympic event, I was running, I found, I did my first, this is my first hundred meter uh, sprint I've ever done. And I'm running on, in normal, you know, my normal walking leg. I didn't have a sprinting leg yet. And I do the vent and I think I get like a 15 something, whatever, hundred meters. And I'm just like, or maybe 16 something, hundred meters. And I was just like, Oh God, that's so slow. That's so sad. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm hard on myself. And then, you know, you get a medal and they're just like, Oh, good job. You made number one or whatever. And I'm like, I guess, you know, I'm just going to throw this in the trash anyways. <laughs> like I don't want this medal. Um, I don't feel like I really was fast enough, but I was recognized by one of the Paralympic uh, head coaches at that event. And they're like, do you, and she approached me and she said, do you have a sprinting leg? And I was like, no, not yet. She's like, you should get one and you should look into it. You have a lot of potential. And I was just like, what? You know, I'm kind of dumbfounded. 
And she's like, yeah, you know, her name was Kathy. Uh, I think her last name was Kathy Sellers, but I couldn't remember. But I, never, I remember her name being Kathy. And, you know, but for someone to approach me and say, you have potential to be good in this sport kind of baffled me because I didn't feel like I was good in that sport at all. Like that wasn't something I was even, I really wanted to be a snowboarder, <laughs> believe it or not. But, you know, to, to have someone when you're, going when you're just really getting into something say you have potential to be great at this it really I really took it and ran with it literally <laughs> and you know I talked to my uh, physical therapist I talked to my prosthetist I happened to find have a coach like right next to me at the hospital and pursued track um, for four years five years trying to make the Paralympics and every year I made it to nationals, but I never made it to the Paralympics, um, which was very, very, very sad because I really worked hard. But at the same time, I realized, and this is a little bit in hindsight, is that I, I also want to do other different things. I was happy to be able to be as active as I was. So I didn't just run track. I did marathons, climbing, all of the things. So I wasn't. No, it, was, it, was, it was an outlet. It was a way to have... A more complete life. This was not an obsession. You were not concerned about the results. You were not concerned about the medals at the top of the podium. Like, you know. Yeah. Not compared to other athletes that I was next to with, which that's where their mind was. Their mind was metal podium. I was just happy to be there. I was happy to train and, you know, compete against and with the greatest, you know, Paralympic athletes, uh, up to date, you know? So to, so to me, I accomplished a lot and I was just like, Oh, you know, like, you know, all of them would talk about, oh, you know, you know, 2016 or, you know, 2012 Paralympics. And I was just like, oh, okay, that's cool. They're, they're, they were super excited about it, but I had never, and again, this is in hindsight, I, I never really was just like, oh my God, I'm going to medal, I'm going to podium. I was just like, no, I'm just happy training. I'm, I'm happy seeing myself progress, you know, because I, I would have never pictured myself as a runner or a sprinter or any of the things I've done up to this point by any means, because I've never done any of them. Uh, so it's, it, it, it really made me ambitious to see what else I can do. So I couldn't just sit on one thing as some other athletes could. I know you've run marathons. Your method of training was slightly unconventional in that <laughs> you, would, you would launch into a marathon, knowing it was gonna be a test of will, knowing you're going to have to gut it out, knowing it was going to suck along the way at certain points, but also knowing you'd never run 26 miles before in training, man. Some people will say, what, what are you doing out there in the competitive marathon? In fact, you'd never run actually close to that at, at one time, had you? So I was there with friends. We've flown out there with, uh, I believe it was Team Superfly, actually, and we're there to run just 10K. And then I get there, and I've done this before. I've ran that one before, and I'm talking to a friend, and I'm asking him, man, I really want to do the Marine Corps Marathon. Like, that's the only one I want to do. You know, like, I'm, and I'm here. Like, why don't I just do it? And he's like, well, you should do it. And I was like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not trained for that. I'm not prepared for any of that. He walks away from the conversation. I'm thinking the conversation's a dumb idea. He comes back to me and he's just like, I got you signed up for the marathon. And I was just like, what do, what do you mean you got me signed up for the marathon? He's like, I got you signed up for the marathon. He's like, I, I talked to them. They put your name. Like, so I guess you can go up, but you can't go down. So you can go from 10 to marathon, but you can't go from the marathon to the 10. Uh, and so I didn't question it because I think 
I, I truly wanted to run this marathon. But at the same time, I was not trained for a, even a 10K, let alone a marathon. But it was a challenge that I was just like, I, I want to know what's going to happen. I want to so know. What, what's that conversation in your head when you reach mile 10 and mile 13 and mile 21? <laughs> I mean, even experienced marathoners who know what the journey's like still mm -hmm. suffer at those moments. This is all new for you. What, yeah. what are you telling yourself to get to the tape? Well, you know, when I first start out, you know, I'm like, oh, this isn't so bad. You know, three miles in, you know, five miles in, I was like, this, this isn't so bad. I was, I was just like, I'm, I'm going to do really well. And then mile 10 of this marathon, it catches up to me because I don't know how to properly, uh, I don't know anything about nutrition and running distance. And so even though I'm drinking cups along the way, it's not enough. My body starts to lock up. It starts to uh, practically cease. Um, and so I was super dehydrated. And, and this is at mile 10. I was just like, I don't think I'm going to make it. Like that was my first thought. I was like, I don't, I don't think I can, I can, I can't even get up and walk without cramping. So I, I was just like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make this. And then I think about the time, how much time I have. And I'm like, I can walk this. I can walk. I can do this. But even walking was a, was a, a difficult task because <laughs> everything kept cramping. And so I started to doubt myself and I started to lose faith that I will actually compete complete this marathon um and I kept telling myself I was just like you know what then I'll just have to die <laughs> I'll, I will have to keep going until I no longer have the ability to say I can't anymore and that's usually well not dying is a little extreme but probably you know passing out no longer coherent <laughs> something bad has really really happened and I have everyone running past me they're giving me their goos and what have you and I'm just like I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk this off. I'm going to get through this. And I do it every mile, you know, I get to mile 11, I get to mile 12. And I'm just thinking about like the Marines that I serve with, because this is the biggest thing to me, the Marine Corps marathon. I was like, there is no, I can't in this, in this, in this race for me, um, which really wasn't a race, more of a challenge. Um, but there is no, I can't, there is get up, do it until you can't. And that's how I remember that training, you know, as we would always train be. You know, you, there is no, I can't, there is, I will, I, I'll do until you can't, until you physically no longer have that option of you're just not present. You're not coherent anymore. Um, and I, I made it, I made my first marathon. <laughs> I ran until I couldn't. And then I walked and then after a while I can kind of walk and trot, <laughs> but I completed my first marathon with really no training, but it was to me, the marathon was all mental, but it, 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 it opened a lot of doors mentally that made me realize I can, I can really push myself. The body can take a lot, but it's the mind. If the mind breaks, if the mind gives up, if the mind stops, you know, then the body follows. And so I always had to kind of keep my head in the right space, um, that entire thing, because my body was just in a lot of pain. <laughs> but enduring it was just like, okay, I, I can do this. So you get through it and you are strong for having made through it. You've learned some things about yourself yeah. besides running marathons. Another thing you hadn't done before is climb mountains. Yeah. So for, for those listening who are not geeks about mountains, as both of us are, uh, <laughs> Vincent Massif is in Antarctica. So the coldest place on earth, it's 16,000 feet. It's rarely climbed because it's so hard to get to and mm -hmm. so damn cold. And not right. many people even 
ponder the idea of doing so, you find yourself on Mount Vinson, someone who doesn't like the cold period. Now you're in Antarctica and it's basically, uh, it's like a pyramid of ice, basically. Mm -hmm. It's basically solid ice. And you are going through this process again, Chianti, that you also went through in a marathon, right? I mean, describe the, the mental challenges you have to overcome because there's this demon saying, what are you doing here? You're not going to make this. You're out of your mind, right? So you're, you're fighting that battle all over again near the South Pole. Yeah. And that, this is, I, I would say this mountain is the highlight to my entire athletic career. Um, because doing this climb, uh, I was climbing with the Heroes Project and I saw one of the athletes and they did Kilimanjaro and Mark Zambon, that's his name. Um, and he was in the hospital with me. He's a bilateral, uh, AK actually. And I saw him, uh, climb Mount Kilimanjaro and I'm like, oh man, that's so cool to see an amputee do such a thing like that. Like I would have never thought that was possible for an amputee. And so what happened? I'm walking past Mark one time and he's like, yo bro, like you're always trading. Like, are you interested in climbing mountains? And I was like, after seeing him climbing, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in climbing mountains. I want to, I want to experience that but I know nothing about mountains. I have no background. I have no history with climbing mountains whatsoever. I have history of Marine Corps hiking and that's just carry a heavy pack until what direction to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have no experience, but it was a new challenge and I really wanted to experience that. And so he, you know, he connects me with um, Tim Medbets of the Heroes Project and we start talking. He's like, well, the next one I have set up is Antarctica. And, you know, are you, are you ready for that? He's like, you know, like, this is not, this is, this is something that's going to test you um, to your fullest. This is not something that's just, you know, a walk in the park. This is not like climbing Cal's Mount here in San Diego or your local, you know, hike. This is, this is, this is life or death in some situations. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, totally. Just saying yes to, to do it. Just, that's all I, that's really how I was. I said, yes, just to do it. But realizing don't really know where Antarctica was had to google that because <laughs> you know I don't know why geography eluded me for so long but yeah I had to look that up I was like oh that's where that is it's one of the continents um but it was but at the same time I I, I we started trading and and that's kind of where I found myself at peace with the experience of climbing mountaineering like we we had to truly train for this. And I, I honestly, I went in thinking like, oh, this is a walk in the park. This can't be that hard. It's just one foot in front of the other. But the amount of training that we did, like we went to, um, what's the mountain in uh, Washington? Um, Mount Rainier. That's, that's Washington, right? Mount Rainier, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We went, so so we, we had to do uh, crevasse training um, and uh, Mount Rainier, um, and ice axe, crampons, you have to do all that. I'm like, what did I really just sign myself up to do right now? <laughs> like, as we're going through this, and we even do, you know, hiking through the Sierras, you know, where we get caught in a snowstorm one time. Uh, and I'm like, what, what did I, what, what am I signing up to do right now? I really, I really didn't think too heavily about this decision. <laughs> better, um, better to ask those questions there than for the first time on Mount Vincent, though. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, that is an extreme situation where, you know, when you're climbing on ice or using ice tools, you're roped together, I assume. And 
and all, all the things that the expedition climbing on, on that ice surface leads to. So I, I, it's a damn good thing you had some training in Mount Rainier and other places before you set up down there. But when you get to Vincent and in any climb, there's a crux. There's a part where the, the challenge is very present and direct and you have to overcome the mental obstacles at that point. So when you're there, what, what's that like? At, at what point at the marathon, you mentioned it was at 10 miles. That's less than halfway there. You still got it out you know, the last 16 yeah. miles. On, on Vincent, where was the part where, where the voices come into your head that you don't want to hear, that you're trying to, trying to push out, the I can't voices? Um, and I was just about to get into that too. Um, and that came around when we're on Mount Vincent. That came around right before the summit, right before the summit. As we're going up, um, I believe it's called the ice wall. Um, it's a pretty steep incline. Like you couldn't walk up it. You actually actually have to use, you know, your ice axe, um, crampons, uh, all that training kicked in too, which is good. Cause it was, I, I enjoy that. I, for some reason being on ice is a lot of fun than just walking. Um, but it was, that part was a lot of fun, but I got really tired and I started to doubt my abilities because it became harder and harder. Like as we're getting to the base of the summit, um, or right before the last, push for the summit so we had to rest camp and then wake up early that morning and push for the summit but that was where it kind of kicked in for me where I was just like you know is can I do this and, and, and it was kind of a moment for me where I looked at it and I was just like hey I, I made it this far I'm proud of myself like I'm 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 really proud of myself making this far I never thought I'd make it this far on a mountain this is kind of cool um like if I couldn't go any further I'm still happy that I did this, but I don't ever half-ass anything. <laughs> and so it was just like, nah, I can't settle for that. We're getting to the summit. And it got to a point where there was a section of it where I was just like, I, I really don't know. Like, like kind of like that marathon field too, where I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I truly don't know because if I get to a certain point, we have to get back down. You know, there's no vehicle coming to get me. There's no helicopter that's going to airlift me down. There's, that's just not an option here at all. So I kept telling myself, I was like, what do you, what do we do? And I'm like, well, we don't quit. So we're getting to the summit. And the only thing I can do is try to find motivation. And I always go back to this because it, it makes me laugh, but I always thought of my Marines because I had the Marine Corps flag in my backpack. And that's what, that was another motivation of mine was getting that to the summit. But I always thought about my, my Marines, how they would laugh at me because I don't like the cold and being an African-American, like on the coldest mountain, on the, in the coldest place on earth. It was just like, oh, there's so many jokes, so many jokes. I just kind of laughed in my own head and just kind of took those names and the people that I remember um, who did pass away and even took, you know, the names of my friends that they're still alive um, and kind of just envision them like walking next to me or hiking with me. And we're just kind of like laughing. Um, and it, 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 it gave me that feeling of being back during those hard times where like, I would even question the Marine Corps, like, can I do this? And I find my way to push through. And that was my motivation was doing it for them, doing it for me. But then also the other piece of that puzzle that clicked as I was walking up there was like, I'm doing this for other veterans who are wounded as well, who are in the hospital, who didn't think that you know, who, who, who don't know what's beyond or what's at the scope of their limit. Like when I saw Mark Zambon, I didn't think that was an option for me. 
you know? So to me, that was motivation. I want to be that motivation for other Marines, other people. And so I was just like, no, this is, this is I want to, this is going to be something bigger than me. Um, but this is it's still a challenge for me. Um, and so as I'm going up to the summit, um, I, I, you know, it's funny because actually Tim, he kind of hid it for me for a while. He didn't want to tell me what the summit was, even though it's like you're running out of space where to go. Uh, <laughs> but we get to the summit and I just break. I, I am truly in awe and just, just it, it was a surreal experience that I actually did it. Um, with all the doubt that kind of came in my mind and all the questions that I had, I was actually on top of Mount Vincent and the, the icing on the cake, and this is kind of another great story, is that I got to actually call my mom on that mountain. The biggest, the biggest accomplishment I feel I've ever done was being on that mountain, and I got to call the biggest inspiration, my biggest motivation, um, you know, as soon as I got there. So to me, it was like the, the highlight of all my athletic feats. Uh, so that to me was a great feeling. That's a great summit story to have the presence to, to let it all go, the emotion to be able to represent your, your Marine brothers with a flag, to be able to call your mom. I mean, that's that that's a great summit experience. That doesn't always happen at the top of mountains. If uh, mm -hmm. you're authentic, you kind of let in whatever whatever comes. And the fact that you were able to experience that, that's tremendous. Vincent, by the way, I don't know if you know this, was discovered by the U.S. military. It was Navy, Navy aviators that flew over it and first, first realized there was this big mountain. So there's a kind of a uh, closing loop there, being able to take the Marine yeah. flag up there. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that actually. So, so you're on the top of this mountain and the voices of the guys you had served with, I know helped you get there. You said humor was even a part of it. So you were thinking about what they would say to you, oh, yeah. knowing you're in this place, what they would say to you, knowing you were thinking about maybe I'm not going to make it. it it's, it's funny what we draw upon. I, I can't relate to, to uh, most of what you've gone through, but it, it's amazing what pops into your head under times of duress that somehow helps you push yeah. the right button. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why for me, it's always been like, it's always been a mental battle. Like even like comparing the marathon to Mount Vincent to other athletic feats that I've done or accomplishments that I've even done for myself is that it's always been mental. Like as soon as you get to that point of that, that breaking point, you don't know what happens after that because after that it, it's uncomfortable. It's all new. And I, I, I can say that I enjoy this. I ran another marathon by the way, um, because I was curious about that idea too. Um, is like, what happens? Like when is, once you get past that threshold and you're just uncomfortable, you don't know what you're going to do. And I found that interesting because we're always in a comfortable environment. You know, when we're hiking, if we're training for something, we're comfortable. We push ourselves to be slightly uncomfortable, but never to a point that we can't just dial it back down and we're comfortable again. And we can kind of just, you know, get back to where we need to go. But on that mountain or even in that, in the marathon, I pushed myself to be so uncomfortable that I didn't know what was going to, like, what was going to happen for me physically and physiology as well as mentally. And, and it was kind of interesting that I always drew the strength from my past experience being with strong men and women and Marines and people I trained with and all the training that I've done, that was something I've always drew upon. And I always found that interesting. Like that's when I get to that point, that's where I go. That's, that's where I find more strength. 
and everything that I've done now past that, I don't know. Cause there has been one point where I got to a point where I was just like, I got nothing. I just got to grind this out. And that's more so looking at the situation of, well, I still got to get back down or get to wherever I'm going, but this is going to truly suck. <laughs> I, I've never heard you in your, your description of climbs, whether it's Vincent or Kelly or the marathon, I've actually never heard you make mention of pain, discomfort, even inconvenience of running on, on a prosthetic leg. I mean, it, is it such a part of you now that it's doesn't even factor into the equation? Because that's obviously the question we we're going to have is how, this is hard enough to climb um, without a prosthetic leg. How, how in the hell did you do it? And how is that not a factor or not a hindrance? I think because and why it's not, it is a hindrance. It is, is a big hindrance because every time I've done any of these, you know, running, climbing, what, what have you I've done, I've always had to take a moment, adjust my prosthetic, make sure I'm not getting a blister because if I get a blister, then I'm, I, I'm done for. <laughs> uh and so and but i don't mention them because i don't know where i I guess i don't mention them because it simply doesn't apply to everyone else i i, I tell that experience of that the mental toughness that you need to have to push through situations not everyone has a prosthetic so i going through myself you know it, it is a very big hindrance it is it, it it could really be the reason why you don't accomplish something based on a small little, you know, blister that prevents you from using your prosthetic. You no longer can walk, you no longer can move forward. Um, but I always share the story of more so trying to make it encompassing to everyone. And I think that's, that might be able to answer that question of why I don't care, you know, mention it as much about my prosthetic, but I'm in a lot of pain and all the things that I do, um, a lot, a lot of pain, a lot of the time, but, you know, I think it's just in my situation, that's, that's just the nature of the beast for me is that I push through a lot of pain, but if you had all your limbs, it, it's one less thing that you might have not have to worry about, obviously. These are difficult things. I mean, every day can be difficult. Mm -hmm. I, I know you still struggle as, as so many do. But if someone says you can't, you, you can't do this. I, I don't think you're up to this. <laughs> What's well, your response? A, playing a dangerous game there. <laughs> to tell me that I can't do something is a very dangerous game, um, which has happened actually, not, not in, a, in a, a cruel or uh, like me and my friends were just joking around, but they were just like, oh, you can't do something. And it was like, I went full head trying to make sure I can prove them wrong. And that's where my mentality lies is if you tell me that I can't do something and I actually do want to accomplish it, I will find a way to accomplish it just to prove you wrong. But that's also again, where it's just like, yeah, if I told myself I can't do something, that's a totally different situation, you know? Um, but I never say I can't do something. You know, I, I look at myself as like, oh, I'm struggling. I might have a moment where I'm like, oh, man, I don't think I can do this. Maybe I can't do this, but I'll never stop moving forward to accomplish it. Um, and those because those happened in every one of my you know adventures of hiking, running. Oh, man, I can't. I might not be able to do this, but I still kept moving forward. I never stopped. <laughs> and that's the difference. It's like if you if you tell yourself you can't and you stop, then you now have a decision to make of 
do I want to try and push myself forward or do I just turn around and take the easy way and go back? And most people will take the path of least resistance. And I want to know what's beyond those barriers. I want, I, I truly, myself personally, I like those challenges. I think it showed and told me a lot more about myself than I would have learned any other way. If you were to reflect back now, more than a decade, that, that September morning when part of your right leg was taken from you, how would you say that incident made you grow as a person? What did you gain from that experience from having part of your leg taken away? Oh, um, I'd have to say I gained a lot. Um, because without being injured, I don't know where my life would have gone. And I don't think it would have been this direction that it is now by any, by any stretch of imagination because I wasn't an athlete um, before then. So I wouldn't see why I would go and be an athlete after the fact. Um, but being injured showed me and opened my eyes to what's out there in the world. Um, I got to travel. I got to compete. I got to challenge myself. And it, for me, it, it being injured is honestly one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I, I have to be honest with that because I've done so much. I've done so much in my life that I would have never thought was possible. And finding myself through these challenges because of my injury just to me has made me a better person. Like if I had to say, if you were to ask me and then I wasn't injured at all, where would I be? I'd probably say back home in Stockton where I was, you know, my hometown might be in school, might not be in school. You know, I might, you know, I have like 10 kids right now. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't truly answer that because I truly, I, I didn't live the best life. Like being injured at this point, I've lived a lot of my best life that I would have never dreamt possible. And so my injury has really pushed me, but it also put, what made me want to push myself to be better and help others because I feel like everyone should experience living life and not and not being stuck in place like you can be when you get injured. You can get stuck in place and think, oh, life's over, life's not great anymore. You know, you could be depressed, you can really spiral downwards. But I really continue to do these things to show other people. They're challenges for me but to show other people that you can do it, whether you're missing limb or you're not, we all, we're all human. We all go through something mentally. You know, we all have a brain as far as I'm aware, um, but we're, so we all go through something, you know, upstairs, you know, maybe it's a hard day. Maybe you're going through a tough time. I, I, I want to show that you, you know, even when times get hard, you can get through it. You just, you just really got to keep moving forward. But if I were to ever stop at any one of those points that I did, I, I wouldn't have accomplished anything. I really wouldn't accomplish anything. Um, but that that would go, I want to tie this back for just a little bit too. But even when I was injured, even when I was injured, 
like laying there bleeding, I told myself, I can't fall asleep. I can't fall asleep because if I go to sleep, no longer do I have a choice. If I remain awake and I kind of keep myself awake, and I remember talking to the guys saying left, right, left, while they're carrying me on a litter or a stretcher, um, to stay awake. I stayed awake as long as I could because that gave me the option to keep moving forward. But if I were to go to sleep, like as much as I really wanted to do, um, if I went to sleep, then I no longer have a choice. I don't, I, I would have to play it out and see where it goes, but I don't have a choice. And so that's, I'm tying this in with everything because we have a choice in the matter of how we go about situations in our lives, how we, you know, choose to make a plan, take action or not do something. It's all a choice, but that's, that's really the reality of you being in charge of your own life is that you have a choice. Even if you feel like someone else is dictating it, you have your own, you have a choice, you know, you have a choice of how you go about handling it really. Powerful message. The invisible wounds of war, we talked about the anxiety, the depression. What do people who have not gone through that, who've not had the life experiences that led up to that, need to know about the struggle of keeping it at bay? Um, that's exactly what it is. It's keeping it at bay. Like, and I'll speak for only myself in this, but I do know others who do have depression, anxiety, um, PTSD, what have you. But my experience is, is that if you let yourself sink too far into that depression, it, it'll, it'll consume your world. It'll tr truly consume your world. And the mountains keeps a lot of that. And being active for me keeps a lot of that at bay. It means I, I, I'm taking control. I'm doing something that makes me happy. But if I didn't do anything, fell into a dark depression, choose to stay inside all the time, sleep, not hang out with friends anymore, it'll just keep pulling you down. And I've been there. I've been to that bottom place where I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how to get out of this. But I will say if you are in that place, definitely talk to someone. Um, if you if you ever feel like you're too low, you don't know what to do, definitely talk to someone. For me, my outlets have always been being active. So even now, like I still, I invested in a home gym during quarantine so I can work out um, because they keep shutting down all the tracks around here. So I'm not too, not too happy about that, that I can't really run track like I want to, but um, even made a prosthetic so I can run up the hills so I can run on gravel and stuff like that. Um, but for me, being active is what keeps my depression at bay uh, because it's, if to me, it just feels like I'm, I'm training to, you know, prevent that from happening again. You know, that this is what's working for me. Difficult question, but you've lived an intensity of experiences that must seem like a few different lifetimes. But if you were to sit there right today and tell yourself at a much younger age, the kid who was been a fighter really since your first breath. I mean, you're born two weeks premature, don't know your parents, foster care. You talked about being uh, kind of a shy, bully kid in middle school, trying to find himself. Eventually, you fled to the Marines. If you could deliver a message about the twists and turns of life and the lessons and then talk to your young self back then, what would you say? 
buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> um, as much as I would probably, I'd probably say something smart alecky, uh, alecky, but I would, if I had to truly give myself a, a real message, I'd probably just say it gets better. Um, and because as a teen in my youth, I, I felt like life was very unfair. Um, and, but to this point, I can look back and say, you know, like, no, it, it gets better. It gets better over time, and you have a, you have a choice to make. Um, and that's that. That would probably be my my short message. <laughs> I can probably make a very long message, but that would be my short, sweet message of, you know, it, it it gets better, and you have a choice. Because if I didn't join the Marine Corps, I I, I joined the Marine Corps because I was afraid of getting involved in gangs, staying in, you know, my hometown. So I did make choices to get me out of those bad scenarios that could have been worse if I didn't make a decision. Um, so I did what I can to get out of that. You know what? You could talk for hours, but sometimes the most powerful messages can be delivered very succinctly. Seven words. It gets better. You have a choice. And that's something that resonates with a lot of people. I think that as dark as things are, if you remember those seven words, they can be very, very powerful. Yeah. We could go on forever. Um, I thank you for the generosity of your time and sharing this story. Not all this stuff is easy, but I think that anybody listening, there are such universal themes. Maybe the circumstances aren't exactly what you went through, but your reaction to them and the message you deliver, I think is, is really powerful and, and really useful. So I wish you continued strength, Keontae. Oh, thank you. These days, Keontae is a full-time college student in California, closing in on a degree in kinesiology, which he expects to turn into a career in physical therapy, one of his true passions. As for mountains, he and I are making plans to rendezvous in Colorado whenever we can to climb a couple 14,000-foot peaks in that beautiful state. Keontae supports the Semperify and Americas Fund, invites you to learn more about that, and range of motion project which provides access to prosthetic care around the world his motto of staying active and moving forward is also shared by the guest in the companion episode in this podcast that's abc news correspondent bob woodruff had the great pleasure of co-hosting the invictus games with bob a few years ago learned a lot from him he was a correspondent who covered conflict around the world for about a decade you might recall he was named co-anchor of ABC World News Tonight, December of 05, and the next month, while embedded with the military in Iraq, was nearly killed by a roadside bomb. We'll talk about that, about his recovery, but more importantly, about his new path since then, which led to the creation of the Bob Woodruff Foundation, along with his wife, Lee, and members of his family that's done tremendous work donating tens of millions of dollars to veterans' causes. That's coming out this week. I invite you to look for it. My thanks to co-executive producer Jennifer Dempster and producer Jason Weichelt. Thank you for listening. I invite you to subscribe, rate, and review. That really helps us. Any feedback, please leave on my Instagram at Chris Fowler. Thanks. Talk to you soon.